0: we do with the spiritual, moral regrets that we have when we're honest and humble before God, looking at our past, looking at our present, looking perhaps as well to the future, but looking at the mistakes we've made and our spiritual apathy, it might be as parents, if we look back on the last five, ten years as parents, or if we look back on 30 years and we're pretty sure we've pursued money more than God for most of our lives. If we have parents, we haven't honoured very well. People who come to mind we might have mistreated in the past, been short with. If we're honest, it's as Isaiah 59 diagnoses of us as he speaks to Israel. And this is easy to relate to our whole world. We hope for light, Isaiah says, we hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind, feeling our way like those who have no eyes. For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. When I think of my friends and I think of myself, there's a heaviness to it. Um, God, is there any relief, not only from the past, but as I, I look towards the future as well, into this universal human problem? Our record of guilt and shame, as we bear or will bear sins, costs and consequences, sins of others or sins of our own, relational breakdown, and most critically, estrangement from God. Now we as Christians have a great remedy for that, but even still there's a, there's a resistance, there's an inertia, there's an old life that gets in the way of something greater and better. But for the world as a whole, first of all, can Jesus truly do something about this great problem that we all feel? Can he truly liberate, free us? Can he liberate and free my friends, whatever they've gone through since those formals? The answer we see in today's text is a wonderful, resounding yes. We've seen Jesus' preparation is complete. Jesus' credentials are established. And this week, holding onto our hats... Our new spirit-filled chapter is beginning in his story. And it's the most exciting chapter yet. Is Jesus able to deliver the freedom humans long for and were designed to enjoy? Well, let's see. We see, first of all, if you're following in your outlines, Jesus' freedom mission. He liberates people by proclaiming the good news of himself. And we see that in verses 14 to 30 in Luke 4:14, 4, news of Jesus had started to spread. Jews around are loving his teaching, there's something different about it. He's becoming something of a celebrity teacher. People in the synagogues of rural Galilee were praising, glorifying him. We read in verse 15 there. How's the son of God now going to go in his hometown? Well, let's take a look as he reaches there in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. As was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, just to note here, Jesus is reading a very powerful, very exciting part of God's Word. A part that foretells in quite um, wonderful detail what God is going to do when He ultimately fixes this problem that humanity finds ourselves in. And it's going to be through a coming Messiah. A servant, a savior. Uh, These mysterious figures all rolled, it seems, into one person as we come to Jesus. So from Isaiah chapter 61, here Jesus himself reads a prophecy about himself The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or to evangelize the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. There's something different about the way he's reading that. And notice this is not a new aid program, something like what a good government, government might do for its citizens. Social welfare for the poor, humanitarian support for prisoners, medical provision for the blind, Liberation of the marginalized. Excellent, though, these initiatives are. Now, these are promises written to Jews who were, because of their rebellion against God, themselves in this poor, sorry state. Spiritual prisoners, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed. Similar to the state I was describing at the beginning. Like Australia, sin was ruining Israel from within. Sin was among them, reducing their society. Sin was creating distrust and distance from God. The curses, the spiritual and material consequences God's law warned will follow disobedience, well, now they're heavily upon them. Clouds of worldliness, mists of sin. Israel only ever had tastes of the peace, the shalom that they forever craved. They, like our own world, were usually oppressed. But in Israel's case, their enemies were physical and especially spiritual. Their greatest enemy was never Egypt or Assyria or the Roman Empire. Their greatest enemy was never a foreign king or invaders. Their greatest enemy was spiritual. Their ancient spiritual foe who had ruined the garden. Their struggle is chiefly against the persistent idol worship, their grumbling and disobedience, their ongoing distrust in their faithful Lord's anointed messengers. Pick your prophet, whether it's Hosea or Joel we looked at last year, or Isaiah or John the Baptist. They all call the same thing out. It should be no surprise to all Jews of the day. And that's why John the Baptist starts Israel's healing process He begins not with a medical clinic, a political movement, a military school, or motivational talk. No, John called people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's going straight to the heart. Jesus is God's spirit anointed one, verse 18, the greatest prophet whose primary technique for healing was speaking. It was a message delivered. His primary instrument, not medicinal, but the word of God, to teach and explain. But more forceful and persuasive than those verbs, teaching and explaining, the word used here is proclaim, twice in verse 18 and again in verse 19. The first term being something like gospelize or evangelize, declare the gospel. And the later two terms can be translated preach or proclaim. Sometimes it's suggested preaching should be removed from... It seems to happen every generation or every half generation. We should move to another form of communication other than preachings, dialogue or conversation in church life. But there is and always has been something important about preaching in church. I remember one time uh, when I was the pastor of a small country town. Um, a local Pentecostal church member walked past handing out brochures for a healing service... And we got on quite well in the, in the community as, as fellow believers. But he had a little dig at me, a little competitive dig, as he handed me one of the brochures. And said, so do you do healings here? I think knowing that we didn't have the same emphasis as they did. And I answered him, yes, we do. We, we preach God's word every week. And God is at work to heal sinners like me. His word brings spiritual health into our church life, whatever our circumstances, whatever our bodies. Now, it's not to say healing services aren't appropriate or they're not good things, but caring for mortal bodies is good, but the church's chief concern must always be the healing of souls. Jesus often healed bodies to demonstrate this point, and we'll see two examples of that shortly the refugee, the poor, the sick and dying, your aunt, your uncle, niece, grandparents, children. They need the gospel more than anything else. And the soul healing, the the peace with God that Jesus is offering, in one sense that doesn't make him different from the Old Testament prophets. They said the same. Your problem is spiritual. John the Baptist said the same. But what does make Jesus different is what he says in verse 21. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As you are listening to the magnificent promise, it's coming true. The great coming day is today. The day all of the prophets spoke of is now. The coming Saviour is proclaiming his arrival to you today. I am the messenger of good news. I am the good news. The healer come to liberate, to heal our nation and our world. And just as Jesus was praised, glorified a few verses earlier, so again the synagogue gathering recognises something special in his words. Verse 22, they're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. I don't know if you've experienced or noticed how fickle crowds can be. I watched a documentary on David Beckham recently, the English footballer. Who just craved all of his life to to play football and and, uh, play for England. Uh, He was a national hero for what he could do on the football field and off the football field. But it was interesting to watch he became a villain for England almost overnight when he got a red card in a football match that England blamed him for losing the match uh, as a result. And suddenly he was the object of anger and hatred and crowds booing him every time he came onto the field and every time he left the field. Relentless. The social media world, too, can be ruthless. Countless unworthy people suddenly have great influence to threaten and cancel and terrorise from behind their keyboards. This hometown hero happy story turns nasty almost as soon as it started. Something happens in verse 22. I don't know if you noticed in the reading or in home group this week. Something flicked a switch and praise turns to fury. It's remarkable. Rather than own up to their sin as the Messiah came and confess it, rather than bow to their spiritual, their spirit-anointed king, they instead ask, isn't this Joseph's son? That's what seems to change the whole narrative here. It seems harmless enough on first reading perhaps with the tone and darkness of it lost in translation but it's such a lame, faithless response. It's hardly worship, is it? Now Jesus knows his hometown people well he knows what they were thinking, he knows why they said it and judging by the gentlest ever man's response their question was not coming from a good place They're back to questioning Jesus' credentials. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? One author says, rightly I think, the Nazarenes admired Jesus, but their admiration was tempered by scepticism. Balanced by scepticism. He deserves pure admiration, but they weaken it with doubt. A sunny day with patches of rain that's enough to ruin the outdoor wedding plans. A low vision, low thanks, quite disparaging question that misread the moment, that missed the opportunity to praise their Messiah for this great today that had come upon them this day. Their Saviour had come. True, but don't forget he's Joseph's son. It's a lesson, isn't it, for those of us with our Western disposition to think very critically. That's, that's one of our, our, our habits as Australians. Some of us even are quite proud of that honed ability of critical thinking. And there's, there's great value to that. It contributes to our society in many ways. It's a problem, I think, when we feel it's our responsibility to call out problems, risks, costs of anything going on, anything and everything perhaps... If we're not careful, it can lead us to take negative slants on so many of God's good works. Praise items that we deconstruct, pull apart, cost. What should have been done better, noted and perhaps shared with the weary servant who is doing his or her best to carry it out. Amazing things going on, but we we find the problem. So much reason to give God thanks. Thanks. But we find the little issue. Perhaps it's part of being an Aussie to have some of this glass-half-empty approach to life and spiritual things. But we want to be very careful when applying this tendency to the gracious works of God. Just bringing little spot showers on God's parades. How was church? Well, I didn't like the second song. How was Bible study? Well, Mary wasn't there Again. And we went 10 minutes over time. How was the youth camp? Expensive, so I'm told. God brought these people into our church family. Yeah, to replace those who left. And now we, I guess we're meant to get to know more people. Lots of kids here at church today. Yeah, did you see one of them at morning tea? We often speak of healthy scepticism, but so often it's not very healthy at all. At Bible college, uh, where I was working, some students just loved learning and loved the Lord and wanted to be well prepared for ministry and were as a result. Others seemed to somehow deny themselves that process. They missed out, always seemingly interested in what was wrong or suggestions to make things better, and they they missed the whole gist of what was going on. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Is there really anything special about this guy? We know his roots and they're pretty ordinary. They say he's done special things in other places, but we haven't seen much. So far, just talking. When Jesus the Magnificent says, Today the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing, they think it's worth responding with the pathetic, Whose son is he again? He's God the Son, you hard hearted fools, is what I would want to say if I was not among them myself. Their rain shower, their question, changes the direction of this chapter like a pivot. Their praise switches into attempts at murder. When Jesus calls them out for finding a way to doubt God's certain grace to them. Jesus knows his people, and he points out Israel's long history of rejecting their own prophets. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. You profess, so why don't you produce? And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. And so they admit they've heard what Jesus has done in Capernaum, remarkable works, but perhaps wanting to put their Lord to the test, as Jesus refused to do earlier in the chapter. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. You're a fresh illustration of Israel's persisting pattern when blessed to have a prophet. You question and find a way to reject their obvious authority. Little loopholes or little corrections you might want to make that mean you dismiss the whole. See there in verse 25 to 27, Jesus says, Remember your great prophet Elijah? He helped a foreign widow instead of an Israelite widow. And remember Elisha? He held a Syrian leper over all the Israelite lepers. You mustn't presume you are God's favorites while skeptical towards the messengers he sends. What the Jews do next proves Jesus was dead right about them. When Jesus exposes their faithlessness, their self righteousness and proud patriotism make them furious. It must have been, we we just read over this, but it must have been a pretty distressing scene. I've never seen a, a person driven out physically of a town. But verse 29 we read, They drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. It's serious, isn't it? I've never heard of churches planning, plotting a trip to Katoomba to get rid of their pastoral team. Um, if you hear of such plans, can you just let me know soon? But the time for Israel to murder God's gracious Son hasn't yet arrived, and so God seemingly intervenes, verse 30, and and Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. A prophet should be tested by his words, not his performance of miracles or whether he fulfills this or that healing request on demand. Jesus was always unworthy of their scepticism, but in his kindness, not because he has to But in his kindness, Jesus provides two spectacular demonstrations that he truly does and can free people. Body, and more importantly, our souls. I don't know if you've watched those people who do Rubik's Cubes really quickly. Maybe you're one of them. Um, Impressive. Two minutes. I I can't do it in an hour. Um, Even with YouTube. 30 seconds. 10 seconds. It would be like coming across the world Rubik's Cube champion who claims, or you here, can do a Rubik's Cube in under 10 seconds and you say 10 seconds, that's ridiculous Fair enough Think what you like He walks out and there's a group of kids outside who recognise him and he does the cube in the world, his world record of 3.13 seconds Unbelievable You think I can't heal? I'll heal. Because emphasis, however, is on the power of Jesus' word, his message, his verbal instructions to heal, we don't so much see but hear Jesus free people in the miracles to come. The healing authority of his word for all who trust in him. That's the benefit of the word. It's conveyable. It it, it can be heard by us as well as those So let's see what Jesus does. Let's hear. Demonstration one. Hear Jesus free a demon-possessed man with his word. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. See the emphasis on word here? In the synagogue we read, there was a, a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried at the top of his voice, not, aren't you the son of Joseph? No. Go away, what do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, his humanity acknowledged. But have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Word again. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And see again, not only is the miraculous evidence on display... But it is the mighty word of God that is credited for their freedom. A word that offers us freedom in our day. Your friends and my friends. Verse 36. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Demonstration 1. And then in Demonstration 2, there's a broadening of the freedom Jesus brings. Um, Not just a spiritual situation, but here Jesus now liberates people from sickness and from demons. His power seems limitless, verses 38 to 44. Jesus offers freedom from fever, verse 39. Various illnesses, verse 40. Demons again, verse 41. And what's his point I can truly free people of all kinds of chains. The promised coming kingdom is being offered now. Don't doubt me, but trust in me. And on the other side of this world, where there is death, mourning, crying, pain, I guarantee you freedom from death, mourning, crying, and pain. And that forever. Stick with me, listen to me, trust me we've seen in recent weeks Jesus' preparation, then his credentials, and now he's proclaiming. Proclaiming the best news to address the worst human problems. Verse 43, he makes his mission clear. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. This kingdom that is without the problems that I'm describing. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea and perhaps doing miracles on the side but emphasis here on the word and so friends however great your problems the freedom Jesus offers is greater take him at his word today whatever you feel you need freedom from Jesus is your answer Jesus mends spirits now and will mend all bodies later He offers again today forgiveness, peace with him, adoption into his family. Mended souls will be fitted with new, wonderful resurrection bodies. And so under the final point, DPC, what are we to do with this? God's freed people with the word that frees others. I think the word has been emphasised in Luke here for good reason. This word is what we hear to save us and this word is the word we can, with a similar power, speak to others. The power is in the word, whether it's from Jesus' lips or from yours. Its power is transferable. If you're still a bit of a doubting Thomas, Jesus might say again to you today, stop doubting and believe. And if you're someone living in a world as I do where you you and your world pursue freedom from its bonds in all kinds of ways, midlife crises with big purchases, eat, pray, love to escape a tired relationship or responsibility. We're a world suffering from spiritual bondage, enslavement, shows itself in greed and manipulation, substance dependence, withdrawal behaviours and many other things that cause or overlap with mental illness. Want lasting freedom in physical, mental, spiritual, financial struggles? Draw near to Jesus. One time Ashley and I were having um, a conversation with a friend of ours, and um, she was going through a terrible time, separation and divorce, and we were just seeking to listen and support her. But at one time, as she opened up, and just the, the difficulties seemed relentless and unresolvable. Can't see her way through it. Just in a very frank, loving moment, Ashley said to her, you know, you need Jesus. You need Jesus, a three-word sentence. It was simple, it was profound, it was true. As far as I know, that woman still hasn't yet come to Jesus. But she has heard the name that can free her. Well, let's pray.